Hey Christian, how you doing, man? I'm doing pretty good, Elias. How about yourself? What are you doing for Christmas? Uh, I'm going home. I'm going to Texas, El Paso, Texas. You going to the desert? I am. What's the, what's the desert like in the winter time? Um, it's still pretty hot. No, it, it gets cold in the uh, evenings, but it's just I, I miss the open air. To be honest, the the expand expansion of open space. You don't really have that a lot anymore. No, we don't. That sounds nice. It I'm happy nice. for you. Thank you. That's great. Yeah. So thanks for coming on the show today. We're going to be talking about some of your recent reporting on mm -hmm. uh, related to vulnerabilities dealing with fleet management systems and later in the show we'll have emma best on of the secrecy collective distributed denial of secrets that's coming up today on safe mode welcome to safe mode i'm elias Grohl, senior editor at cyberscoop Every week, we break down the most pressing issues in technology, provide you the knowledge and the tools to stay ahead of the latest threats, and take you behind the scenes of the biggest stories in cybersecurity. An attack is coming. It's about keeping us safe. He's just a disgruntled hacker. She's a super hacker. Stay alert. Stay safe. Stay safe. This is Safe Mode. I'm Elias Grohl. I'm the host of Safe Mode, and I'm joined today by Christian Vasquez, CyberScoop reporter. Welcome Hi, to the show, Christian. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. So recently, you've been doing some great reporting on vulnerabilities relating to fleet management systems. Mm -hmm. First off, before we get into what this vulnerability actually does, kind of lay out like what is a fleet management system? Right. Right. Yeah, that's a good question. So. Companies, and this can be honestly any type of company, it can be construction company, it could be any energy, electricity, oil and gas, they manage large portions of vehicles or large numbers of vehicles and really um, you, you need a way to figure out where the vehicles are, you know, is the vehicle going where it should be going? Is the vehicle stolen? Can you stop the vehicle? So there's all of these kinds of things wrapped up in in you know managing fleets of thousands of vehicles. Um, and because cars are becoming increasingly digitized, that means that the software can do a lot of things like you know shine a camera inside the vehicle. Um, you can even mess with the Bluetooth or even turn the car off if it's stolen or something like that. So if I'm like a construction company and I own a large number of vans to ferry my construction workers mm -hmm. around the city in which I have projects, I would use a fleet management system to basically track where my cars go, see if they've been stolen mm -hmm. and potentially manipulate them while they're out and about on the streets. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's even, I was looking in, into this a little bit more, there's even like a way to, you know, using AI or, or whatever they call AI um, <laughs> to see if they're awake or not, like if the driver is falling asleep or something like that. So there's safety considerations too. So they're becoming, you know, these, these vehicles are becoming very, very advanced. Okay. So you've been writing about a vulnerability in one of these fleet management systems. Mm -hmm. What is the vulnerability and, and what can you do with it? So the vulnerability is essentially a way for someone to get access to the back end with little to i want to say no authentication meaning anyone with a little bit of python and access to a server or to the ip address can just you know write a quick very very simple script to actually receive and send commands to the server that controls the fleet the cars the vehicles all of them either individually or at once and what can I do with this vulnerability? What can I accomplish with it? I mean, you can really do anything that the software is set up to do. In this case, you can, you know, make some noise over the speakers. You can, um, you know, print a uh, message over the screen. Um, you can even honk the horn or mess with the brakes, or you can even stop the vehicle in the worst case scenario. You can literally write a script and stop thousands of vehicles if you have this IP address and that's really the only thing you need. Right. So this vulnerability was discovered in a commonly used fleet management system uh, by a company that, that you've been talking a lot to. Tell us a bit about the company in question and how they've handled the disclosure of this vulnerability. It's not great. Yeah. Yeah. So this company is okay. So back up just a second there's these two research researchers i've been talking to and i was talking to them about fleet uh vulnerabilities and fleet man uh, fleet management software and they pointed 
One particular one, um, this one was discovered by uh, Yashin Mehabob. Sorry if I messed that up. He's a security con uh, consultant at Zabia. Um, and he's the one that found this. He, he found a IP address on Shodan. He kind of looked into it a little bit. And then he just discovered that this company had this... What's the name of the company? Oh, Digital Communication Technologies. Um, DCT for short, uh, Digital Communication Technologies essentially had the server on the open internet where he was able to view all the cars connected to that server. And there was 4,000 in North America that he can look at them, he can see their speed, he can see in, in real time, mind you, this is all real time. And he showed me in real time the speed where they're going, he pointed to, I can look at this one's camera, blah, blah, blah. So he he wrote up the uh, report, right? He's, contact the company was like, hey, I found this really, really bad vulnerability where I can stop the vehicles on your software. Um, can you fix this, right? And they heard nothing back. And he reached out again and they heard nothing back. And he reached out multiple times with his uh, his security uh, research partner, uh, Ramiro Padeja. He uh, also researches fleet vehicle management software and they try to reach this through multiple organizations, other outside organizations that really what they do is kind of help researchers and um, these vendors kind of you know collaborate to fix the vulnerability that they, that they find for free. And they heard literally nothing back so we have now published our findings about uh this vulnerability you tried to reach the company as well what have they said what have they done um yeah i tried a lot of methods i called all the numbers on their sites i emailed all the emails on their sites um i ended up really just opening a support ticket um on their uh, you know as a customer basically saying hey i've tried all this i'm a i'm a journalist um there's these two researchers who've been trying to get in contact with you you know what's going on um and they basically said okay we escalated this which was actually a little bit more than they told the researchers which was mm. it's not an issue so that's that's all we've got so far and you know i've been you know watching them since we published this and there hasn't been any kind of you know it doesn't seem that there has been any contact since this is published either so so pretty alarming how they they're yeah. dealing with yeah. this right they're essentially refusing to fix this vulnerability in their software that's being used by thousands of people. I think, I mean, just to, to give listeners a sense of like how problematic all of this is, like in your reporting, when you were talking to the researchers involved, like they were showing you camera feeds from inside vehicles, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, this kind of software isn't usually particularly like um, secure. <laughs> they, they were telling me, so this is like not a super uncommon thing. And they were literally showing me this in real time. And, you know, I had to stop recording, had to do all that because this is an actual dangerous vulnerability. And in fact, they were going to have a, a conference and they decided not to name this vendor, Digital Communication Technologies, because they were really concerned that someone would be able to take advantage of this, you know, vulnerability because it was, as they said, kind of easy for them to figure it out and that yeah. you know that's really 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 alarming and the reason why we're naming this company at this point is that both the researchers and ourselves we've really exhausted all attempts to try to get this company to address this vulnerability and given that they're being completely intransigent the researchers and ourselves we don't really have much of a choice but to go out and name the company in the hopes that they'll actually do something about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And this was one of our first conversations, actually. Um, this was uh, back in, I think it was September. So, you know, this has still been, this has been going on for, for a little while. Um, they told me they initially reached out to this company in April and that they were about to go um, show this at a conference. And they were like, we're not really sure whether we should name it or not because it's so dangerous. And yet we've gone through, you know, the CV numbering authorities, the people who actually, you know, are able to assign a vulnerability, a specific CVE. They're kind of in talks with uh, these other organizations that kind of help researchers with that. And mm. eventually it just got to the point of like, yeah, we, we don't have any other way other than to name you because we've tried to work with you for so long and you've been consistently ignoring them for, for this long. So, yeah. So what do you think this story tells us kind of about more broader issues about vulnerability management and trying to address software flaws? Yeah. I mean, I kind of commonly use software in this way. Mm -hmm. I, I do think there's like two main issues with this one. I mean, as 
the world is becoming increasingly, increasingly uh, digitized, this type of software that has massive impacts on, on, a, on a bigger scale than we're used to, you know, we, we do see, you know, um, kind of these, you know, hackathons for single cars or trying to get into the infotainment, infotainment areas of Bluetooth or anything like that. This is, this is scale, right? This is a fleet. This is thousands of vehicles that you can attack at the same time. So on the one hand, as society grows more and more interconnected, these kind of issues will become greater. And on the other hand, with vendors who make this software, there's really not much in terms of leverage these security researchers can do. I mean, this is kind of like, you know, they're coming to this company saying, hey, we found some problems with your software. Here it is. You don't have to pay us. We're just literally just telling you there's some issues. And if they say, as they, as they told these researchers, it's not an issue, there's really nothing anyone can do at this point, right? There's no kind of regulations, unless they're being like incredibly, uh, and I don't want to get into like the legal aspect of this, but it just seems that there's really no leverage for these researchers who are doing this work for free for mm -hmm. these other companies. Thank you for your great reporting on this, Christian. This is a, a fascinating story, and I'm sure one we'll come back to in the new year. Definitely. Thank you. Have a great time. time in the desert. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Coming up next on Safe Mode, CyberScoop reporter AJ Vicenz sits down with Emma Best, the founder of Distributed Denial of Secrets. Founded five years ago, Distributed Denial of Secrets publishes and archives leaked material and is perhaps the leading purveyor of public interest leaks. Our interview with Emma Best is up next. I'm joined today by Emma Best, co-creator of Distributed Denial of Secrets, or better known as DDoS Secrets by many. The world is awash in data from everywhere, particularly data that's been leaked, hacked, stolen, obtained via the Freedom of Information Act, or made public via lawsuits or other court proceedings. Even as a reporter covering data breaches and cybercrime and state-aligned hacking operations, it's literally impossible to stay on top of all the data flying around, a veritable fire hose of information on any given day. Luckily for me and many others, DDoS Secrets exists as an oasis, or rather a reservoir, gathering this information in the public interest and making it available to journalists and researchers to then contextualize and surface information people need to know. DDoS Secrets, a journalist nonprofit, turned five on December 3rd, a milestone marked by leaks from 59 countries and over 100 million files, as Emma recently wrote. Emma and the rest of the team's work at DDoS and on public interest data through FOIA has had a major impact in the form of journalism and revelations around the world. Emma, welcome to Safe Mode. Hi, thank you for having me. No, oh, thank you. Um, as I mentioned, you're a co-founder of DDoS Secrets, and you know it's an organization in my mind that is dedicated to preserving and sharing information for the public interest. Mm -hmm. What what is DDoS in DDoS secrets in your words? Um, I think that's a great way of putting it. We publish and archive information that's that's in the public interest. Um, our original goal was simply finding and preserving information that was hard to find or was coming out at the time. Um, there was a lot that you know had been published in the past. Uh, we started in December 2018 and at the time, you know, a lot of things that had been released by uh, anonymous or other hacktivists had just begun to be hard to to locate, and even things that were more widely known or relatively easy to find, they were just spread all over the place. Um, there was no real centralized place to find it, and those places that were somewhat centralized they they were only really like hacker forums and you know those certainly they certainly serve their place in the ecosystem but they're not the most user friendly there can be legal issues with certain people going there i mean journalists a lot of them are going to have um legal concerns about going and interacting with people there they can be harder to access sometimes there's you know pay restrictions with accessing data there, um, you know, which is something that we've had to contend with at times where it's like, oh, well, we have to pay to get this data. And unfortunately, in those cases, we simply have to walk away because, well, that's an ethical and legal minefield that you just can't really get into. Um, 
but yeah, there was there was just no way for a lot of people to get at this information. And even if you knew that it existed, where would you go to find it? And how much time would you spend trying to get to it? Um, so there was just a big gap in accessibility and knowledge about it because so many people, especially if you were looking for information that wasn't, you know, about your local region, would just, you wouldn't know that it was out there. Um, and if it was about your local region, it could be really hard to find if it wasn't, you know, very well preserved because censorship was just really widely done. And as we've seen since, even in places that say like, oh, you know, freedom of freedom of speech and whatnot, you know, like after we published Blue Leaks, well, you know, the United States suddenly wasn't so freedom of speech about that. So there's there's really a strong need for this sort of thing. Um, and I think that that's ultimately DDoS's role is just finding and preserving the information and getting it into the hands of, of people and organizations that need it, both journalists, researchers, and the public. Yeah, you mentioned DDoS, um, Blue Leaks, excuse me, and some of the major work that's happened over the years, and, I, and we're going to get to some of that. But if I could zoom out a little bit, um, mm -hmm. can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into public records and this kind of work and, and how that might inform what you're trying to do with DDoS secrets? Um, I mean, my background is kind of all over the place. Um, I, you know, since I was very young, I had an interest in, in computers, was playing around with them. Um, you know, I was a little bit of a hacker, nothing serious or impressive. Um, but, you know, like I had, I had a lot of fun taking apart malware and poking around systems before I ultimately realized it just wasn't something that I could sustainably do with my temperament. Um, you know, and that was when I, I decided like, okay, I'm not gonna pursue this computer science major. Um, later looked into other things, which ultimately like helped me become the person that I am. And that for a while included um, being an analyst, you know, at, for a time I, I was a counterintelligence analyst as a subcontractor. And, uh, you know, I thought that the system could be changed by, by people that, you know, wanted it to be better. And I discovered that it did not want to be changed. And um, after some particularly bad interactions, I decided to leave the the field. And that, I think, helps me really understand things in a slightly different way. It helps me with my general analysis, and it helps me understand a lot of what's broken um, about certain things, at least with with government and, and intelligence agencies. And that was a big part of what got me interested in filing um, FOIA requests, public public records requests. I had been accumulating um, documents for a long time at that point, and I'd started making them public because I just had such a large collection that they they weren't doing me any good. Um, just hoarding them. I mean, it was nice for my personal research, but at a certain point, like you have to start sharing things. Um, and after a while, I decided to start going out and getting new things, and that, that meant FOIA requests. And after a certain amount of time, that turned into writing analysis. Um, you know, and that all started in 2015. And then when 2016 happened, um, you know, published the Time Magazine archive, and, you know, then everything happened with uh with WikiLeaks and Guccifer 2 and the AKP archive and just all sorts of other things but you know that also all helped me get perspective that I think is really helpful for for DDoS secrets today because um it helped me see what can go wrong at times and that 
with a lot of things, you know, you can't, you can't unring the bell, you know, and that's, that's one reason why, like, today we have the limited distribution category for data, because we can always increase, you know, access later. We can always give the public more access to data um, if, if we discover, like, okay, there's, there's less personal information in here than we thought, or there's a good reason why this personal information belongs in the hands of, of the public or something. But, you know, if we see a foreseeable harm, it can't be, it can't be undone once it's done. Um, and so we just, we, we decide to put being careful first because we've seen up close what can happen when when we're not or when we assume that it's okay. Right, it's a great point. Um, and I can say from personal experience, having interacted with DDoS secrets over the years, when I need to access information, um, you know, it's, it's, it's very much a public interest sort of reason. And you all do a, a good job of asking questions about what's what the type of people are that are working on these projects and the researchers and that sort of thing. But it's, uh, it's, it's gotta be a, a minefield in some cases. Um, if I'm bringing this back to the organization in general, what can you mm -hmm. tell us about the size of the team and their backgrounds to the extent that you're comfortable sharing those sorts of details? I know that some of the folks are, you know, that work on these kinds of things have, have good reason for not sharing all the details about themselves. But what can you say generally about the, the organization and the group of people involved? Um, at this point, a lot of the people involved are listed on the website. Um, that wasn't always the case when we first launched, and especially when things were less formal before we became a nonprofit. Um, I was the only publicly named member, and unfortunately that still gets referenced in some news articles. People that just see old things written about us without looking at the website just say, oh, this anonymous group. Um, you know, and they they don't look at our about page where all these all these people are mentioned. Um, in addition to myself, there's um, Paul, who I've encountered for a number of years in the in the FOIA field. He's done great work with just collecting public records. He is wonderful with just wrangling data, um, and he. He helps with um, a lot of our financing and just handling records with that. Lorax Horn is one of our editors and has done a lot of uh, great journalism work. They've uh, previously also had some experience with WikiLeaks and Courage Foundation in the past. They're based in Canada now, but they've also worked out of Ecuador and the United Kingdom. They've written for The Guardian and CBC. Um, Milo is our sysadmin, and he is one of the main reasons that we're able to keep operating, and keeps he keeps our systems up and running. Um, he also is our academic liaison, and um, absolutely wonderful. Um, also, some of our advisors, just wonderful people. Um, Annalise, Annalise Burkhart, she um, was director of operations for some previous projects. She's a great transparency activist, Freddie Martinez. Um, he previously worked with the Mozilla and Freedom of Press Foundations, co-founder of Lucy Parsons Lab, and Michael Lee, who um, is with the, the Intercept. He's also got experience with Tor Project, Frontier Foundation, developed Onion Share. Um, and recently just had a book come out, Hacks, Hacks and Leaks. Um, wonderful, wonderful book explains a lot about how to deal with, um, with, with leaked data sets. And, um, I'm sorry, the full title is Hacks, Leaks, and Revelations, The Art of Analyzing Hacked and Leaked Data. Um, it explains a lot about how to work with all this data how to sort through it quickly, how to process it, and it specifically focuses a lot on DDoS secrets data as examples. Um, 
Also, Glenn Sorrentino and Maggie Mayhem are also on our board. Great people. They've done a lot of nonprofit work, um, and we're really glad to have them. Just, and it's really wonderful that we've we've just been able to attract so many people. And unfortunately, I can't name everyone, but um, yeah. Yeah. So clearly, there's a lot of a lot of energy and, and love and time going into this sort of thing um, and, and the work that's going on there. Um, you know, a lot has happened over the last five years. I mean, it's the years are kind of a blur at this point, right? But in terms of, you know, data breaches, data leaks, hack and leak operations, disinformation campaigns, um, widespread surveillance, you know, you name it, the, the last five years have been massive and busy. What would you say, how has the landscape shifted and evolved for the organization over the last five years? Um, you know, are things getting more intense? Are they getting better? Are they getting worse? You know, how, what does it look like from your perspective? I mean, things today are, <laughs> when we started, it was nothing like what it is today and never would have imagined that it could have become what it is today. Um, in the beginning, it was just a simple index. We, we barely hosted any torrents in the beginning. We were only on the onion in the beginning. It was just a dark web website. Um, after a little while, we registered the domain, and it just forwarded to the to the onion. Um, you know, this is the the scale and scope of what we have grown and accomplished to become is beyond comprehension, almost, especially on the unimaginably tiny budget that that we do it and the fact that other than Lorax and myself um, who work on very small salaries everyone associated with the project is volunteering their time everyone does it after their day job and in addition to their 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 social life and any activism that they're doing and um, you know the fact that we've we've been able to accumulate this library and keep our sources safe and build these networks with other journalists and enable these cross-border collaborations is absolutely phenomenal um but at the same time, like the landscape in general is entirely different. Um, you know, ransomware is nothing like it was when when we started. Um, it it was barely a thing, and I mean, it has gone through several transformations. Perceptics was one of the first big leaks of data as a result of, of ransomware. And, you know, it was a good while after after that went offline, you know, Boris the Blade, Team Snatch, um, which I think is unconnected to the current Snatch gang. Um, it was a good while after they went offline before other ransomware gangs started uh, leaking data. And even then, the, that that age of ransomware leaks is very different from what we see today, because those leaks would be somewhat effective in terms of how the data was released. And now what we see is a lot of mass dumps of data that is almost entirely inaccessible. Um, you'll get you'll get data that is yes, it's all technically released but no one can actually look at it or people can look at one or two files but you know if you wanted to download it all 
that would be almost impossible because you would have to download each individual file. There's no, there's no compressed version. There's no torrent. There's no, there's no real way to do it. Um, and a lot of these, these ransomware gangs that make this, this, the files available, they will actually use um, gating software and proxies and things that make it almost impossible for you to download them en masse or successfully complete the soft, the, the downloads. Um, so even when they do release something that might be in the public interest, actually retrieving it can be near impossible. Um, there are exceptions, you know, CLOP, I think that's how it's pronounced, there's a zero. Uh, they somewhat recently released a lot of things via Torrent, and some of that has some public interest, but they stopped that, and most of their things are released just over the onion. Um, and I'm still skipping over several stages of, of evolution there. We we also have, you know, a lot of these these leaks that are just coming out over Telegram and, you know, people that are that are just communicating in in general directly through social media and leaking things that way. And those things can be very interesting, but they're also very hard to locate and very hard to verify because of the way that they're spread. And those leaks can be very discouraging in terms of trying to um, identify and archive everything. One thing that is more encouraging overall in terms of the leak landscape, although not necessarily great in terms of DDoS secrets work and mission, is the fact that there's a lot of leaks that are going directly to to journalists and uh, to media outlets because they've started to make that actually possible. Um, they've they've made it so that sources can directly communicate with them. The downside is that many of these outlets, including big ones, don't actually have the infrastructure to work with the data once they get it. Um, that's that's a real problem. Um, and, you know, they're not properly investing in either the technology or the manpower to deal with it. But, um, yeah. So a lot of changes in five years and not enough changes at the same time. Yeah, you, you mentioned a lot has happened and you mentioned some of the specific uh, leaks and data sets that you all have worked with. What would you say are one or two of the most, you know, sort of impactful or, or, um, you know, significant data collections that you've worked on or you've seen come through DDoS secrets over the last five years? Within the U.S., uh, Blue Leaks has definitely been the most impactful. Um, it was the collection of data sets from fusion centers and law enforcement agencies from across the U.S. It was over a million files. Um, that has prompted hundreds of stories and some, you know, several actually from the last month. They revealed so much about the way that law enforcement operates, has been militarized, the way law enforcement trains and views people and suspects, there just so much about it was horrifying. And one of the things that I think a lot of people initially didn't understand was that, yes, m most of what was in there was legal. And that's what was truly horrifying was how legal everything was it was it was horrifyingly legal these these abuses these attitudes were all legal and authorized and you know there was training about how 
to get away with tasing a pregnant woman and not, you know, not have it be considered uh, abuse. And, well, you have to taste them, you have to taste them here and not here. And you have to wait this long between tasing because that was his mistake. Um, you know, it, it wasn't that he tased a pregnant woman who was just refusing to get to get out from the car it was it was that he didn't wait long enough and he just shouldn't have tased her in the neck you know like these are horrifying things to be saying using using propaganda that was created specifically to villainize people and then presenting it out of context as though it was a real thing again, to villainize people, like, these are horrifying things, but it, they just, they just do it, and these are, these are all not okay, but the idea that, oh, well, the real problem is that people's, the phone numbers of police officers and their, the, the, the desk the desk numbers of police officers was included in the data that's the real crime is just absurd you know and to this day we still don't know what happened to the server that the german authorities seized at the request of the fbi who never obtained a warrant we don't know if it was ever turned over to the fbi or not despite many attempts to find out Outside of the U.S., probably the most impactful data sets um, would be the Latin American military and police data sets uh, from Guacamaya. They are still being investigated. More collaborations are being built, and stories continue to come out about it. Um, recently, the Narcophiles collaboration finished up, and... Um, you know, I think stories are continuing actually to roll out from from that collaboration as a result. But, you know, that resulted in a great number of um, exposés of corruption who was involved in, in various things, both within Colombia and without. Um, but we've we've also had many, many uh, financial stories or data sets. Uh, recently, Cyprus Confidential, um, but before that, there was number 29 leaks. It's it's honestly just hard to choose, you know. It's like, what? Who's your favorite? Who's your favorite child? Who's your favorite pet? I I don't know. There's, it's it's an overwhelming number, you know. I mean, they've all they've all accomplished different things they've they've all they've all had different impacts they've all revealed different sorts of things i i could spin off about each one differently you know pull out photographs from 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 my bag about about each one and say you know oh well they did this they did that you mentioned um blue leaks and it, the law enforcement leaks from 2020 i believe the Department of mm -hmm. Homeland Security uh, referred to DDoS secrets wrongly as a criminal hacker group uh, in the context of that situation. You know, was that typical of the kind of response you get from government agencies or law enforcement bodies, you know, both in the U.S. and around the world? Or was that sort of atypical of the kind of response you're getting for the work that you're doing? Um. We've definitely seen that kind of response before. Um, with with DHS, we were able to dig into it a bit more with the Freedom of Information Act, and um, we were able to trace that designation back to a news article from, I forget which newspaper, but it was from a, a headline which they... Um, which they withdrew and they changed it to from DDoS secrets to to attributing the hack to anonymous correctly. Uh, but DHS, of course, never changed, you know, the their designation or withdrew the the 
their statement, uh, the flyer, bulletin, sorry, DHS never changed the bulletin or the designation. Um, we've, we've seen some similar reactions from other countries. After Dark Side of the Kremlin, uh, we, we were told by uh, Ukrainian reporters that someone in the Kremlin said that it was an attack on, on Russia. Um, we've since been been blocked by the Russian Russian agency responsible for censorship. Uh, we've also published three leaks about that agency. Um, we've been blocked by Indonesia as well. Several corporations have responded negatively to us uh, exposing exposing them. Gab particularly. Um, referred to us as demon hackers while throwing in a slur. Um, and I believe it was the Bahamas that uh, incorrectly said that we, naming me and Glorax in particular, had hacked them and got a lot of information wrong about the data set that we published too. Uh, they started. They said, for instance, that it was obtained at the time that the the collaboration with Der Spiegel started, um, which was not true. Like we had received the data at least a month before that, and if you looked at the metadata, it was even older by at least a month or two. Just so many things wrong with the statement. It was beyond lazy. Uh, even aside from the fact that, you know, they just randomly accused the two journalists whose name was on the project. Um, yeah, so we sometimes do get things like that, but uh, DHS's was the, was the most serious and the most lazy. You know, it's, it, you're certainly on a lot of uh, agencies' radars around the world, as you've described. I would imagine that there are some interesting security considerations you have to keep in mind as you're securing the organization technologically or digitally and otherwise. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the security precautions you might have to go through. Yeah. Um, one thing is that we just work very closely with our host for all of our data, Flokinet. Um, they are very dedicated to transparency organizations in general and whistleblower organizations. They've been a huge help and um, they have worked with us to make sure that we're able to stay online and have been proactive in answering all of our questions and concerns when it comes to security, which um, has been really helpful. Um, I've been able to maintain contact with people um, higher up there so that don't just go through like the generic client portal for things that aren't just general technical or customer service related. Um, and that, that really helps with a lot of things because we're, we're able to be more reassured about things. We're able to keep an eye on, on things as basic as power fluctuations in the, in the server so that if someone were to even try and say disconnect it um, even temporarily or try and do some sort of power clamp we would have a very high likelihood of being able to observe that and of course nothing is perfect um, but we we also do things like you know full full encryption for everything and when it comes to uh, giving people access to limited distribution data. We've continually refined that process and um, we've, we've introduced increasing limits where um, people only have access to specific data for specific periods of time and uh, so that they're not able to leverage that or access things that they don't specifically need and it's not you know expanded on a newsroom level or anything like that. Um, we have gotten the attention of, you know, some people higher up in the government at times. After we made the uh, airman leaks available, for instance, we were contacted by 
the Undersecretary of Defense or the Assistant to the Secretary of Defense for Media Relations or something like that, um, asking us to please take it all down because of the sensitivity and concerns and whatnot. And uh, our lawyer basically reached out and said, you, you can talk to me. And um, that was more or less the end of it. They, they never followed up. They you know, said, oh, yes, that sounds good. This is important. Let's talk. And then never, never responded to schedule anything because it was so important. Um, at, at times, you know, they have tried to, to access our data. Uh, we once got a request from the NSA asking to access all of our limited distribution data. Um, we verified that it was it was actually from them and then proceeded to ignore it. We just wanted to know if it was really NSA or not. But um, yeah, it's 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 something that is continually on our mind and um, we're always just limiting our attack surface. We're keeping everything encrypted and splitting apart systems as best we can. We generally assume that that things can and will go wrong. That's that's one reason why our limited distribution agreements have a lot of the restrictions that they do, and why we keep adding more over time, because. As things develop, as we do more projects with people, and as we see more of the things that people want to do with data, we see more ways for things to go wrong. Um, and we're just very heavily invested in preventing all of that, especially when it comes to the potential inappropriate government access of things, because it's not just a matter of interfering with our operations, it's a matter of preventing them from accessing things that they shouldn't, because we not only have a lot of personal information about people and things like the financial data sets, um, we have a lot of we have a lot of things that, you know, are basically military intelligence. You know, we have the we have data sets that are just all of, you know, an army's uh, emails. We have lots of things that are definitely of interest to governments, and many of them may already have it, but if they don't, it's very understandable that they might want it, and it's not our job, nor would we want to give it to them. Um, it's, you know, entirely different if a, a district attorney or internal affairs sends us an email that says, I read in the paper that, you know, one of our cops is is an extremist, according to your data. Can can you give that to me so that we can investigate and confirm? Giving them that data so that, you know, one of the one of the bad ones can be gotten rid of that's something different, you know, and it's not going to fix the system, but we're not going to be the reason it doesn't get a teeny bit better. Um, but enabling, you know, enabling an intelligence or police database, that's not what we're here for. And um, in terms of in terms of them interfering with our operations. Honestly, most of our technical defenses are more than adequate, and it would be easier for them to just continue with basic bureaucratic obstruction. Um, you know, the, the, the basics of... The, the basics of making it hard to, to financially operate are, are a reality. Um, we avoid American bank accounts because we don't know what will happen on any given day. We, we might not have problems opening a bank account tomorrow. We could have 
six months of operating a U.S. bank account with no problem, and then everything could be seized one day arbitrarily because we put out another data set that, you know, the U.S. doesn't like. And we don't have the the budget to be able to afford something like that. We don't have the 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 extra resources to deal with that. So one of the big ways that we prepare for that is by just not putting ourselves in the position for it to happen in the first place, which unfortunately limits us in a lot of ways. But it's also what has let us get as far as we have. Um, and that was something that we learned really, really deeply after after the server was seized following blue leaks. Um, just, you know, don't put ourselves into a position that we can't we can't afford to to lose from. Especially not with this much especially not with this much data. It's it's too much, it's unprecedented and you know, where where can it safely go that's that's scalable? AWS won't take it. Google Cloud won't take it. You mentioned um WikiLeaks earlier. Uh, a colleague of mine said that DDoS secrets might be the most prominent heir to WikiLeaks. And I'd love to know, first of all, whether you agree with that. And also, given that you've written about, um, journalistically, you've written about WikiLeaks and some of the things that have happened there and what it is today and whatnot. I'm wondering what you've learned, you know, in the context of DDoS secrets, what you've learned about the WikiLeaks approach and how that informed the DDoS operations and and how you all sort of keep it up and running without the issues that WikiLeaks might have had. Um, I mean, I I'd say that it's a fair thing to say that you know we're the most prominent heir to WikiLeaks. I I wouldn't prefer to put it that way myself, just because. Well, I'm not sure why, to be honest. Um, as far as things that we've we've learned from WikiLeaks and you know what we took from the model, in the beginning there were definitely things that we saw WikiLeaks doing and actively decided to do differently. Uh, a few of those things were were both because it was successful by doing that and because we saw it as a vulnerability, a failing, or a weakness. Like, uh, to explain, one of the things that made WikiLeaks really successful, especially early on, was it making data searchable for the public. Um, you know, after after the the relaunch, when they they put everything into the searchable system, you know, the new CMS, that made everything really accessible to the public in a way. Just one one search prompt, type in whatever, you could search everything, and that was really really good. But it also required. Um, it also required really simple data. And that was something that I knew from, from talking to WikiLeaks and dealing with WikiLeaks. So I knew that that was, that was a limitation of it, but I also knew it was one of WikiLeaks' strengths. So decided to both avoid that limitation and just leave that strength to WikiLeaks, because why duplicate a model that someone else is already doing really successfully. You you don't need two of something. And why duplicate a weakness? You don't why why do something that is holding someone else back? So it was just better to take a different approach in that regard. We we were able to to include things that WikiLeaks wouldn't have been able to to index because it was too many different kinds of data or data that couldn't be 
easily parsed through OCR or made searchable by text. It, we could include databases, we could include just all sorts of things. And there were also things that we knew just made WikiLeaks vulnerable from a legal standpoint. Like even then, the most wanted list was a very obvious weakness for WikiLeaks. It was just a big vulnerability. You could see that one just from a mile away, but also it had been brought up enough in, in various cases and by experts that you just knew it wasn't a good idea. It was, it was you know, easy to, to argue that it was incitement or whatever. So we decided that we weren't going to do anything like that. Um, and the closest we came was a list of things that we knew were already leaked and and or hacked that we just couldn't find so like yes we would ask for things but there would be no way to argue that we were inciting anything or asking someone to do anything because it had already been done you can't be responsible for a hack in 2011 if you're asking for a copy of it in 2018. we also had just seen some things that when it came to source handling or transparency or even just the appearance of it that we knew we wanted to do differently because after 2016 everything with Seth Rich was just disgusting the lies that were told directly and indirectly were horrible. The denials about Russia obfuscating that Guccifer too was involved with the DNC leaks, etc., was not was not acceptable. Denying that Russia was in, was involved while also saying that Guccifer too seemed Russian, when we know from the logs now that they did in fact send the DNC emails. They discussed that specifically. Um, you know, it all requires transparency and other things like the editorializing that WikiLeaks tended to do on leaks was not always the most accurate and whether or not those things was because of bias or intention is something that people can and will debate because that's the way people are but the fact that it came with the information itself meant that it became the thing that people would reference especially in initial reporting and it would it would effectively taint all the information that came after it it would poison the well and so we decided that that wasn't something we wanted to do we would simply present the information, we would give it to, to other reporters and journalists, and if if we had thoughts on what it meant or, you know, leads in the data, we would give it to them. And if we really wanted to, to write about it or analyze it, we would do so separately because we just really felt strongly that there needed to be that divide between here is the raw data and here is the interpretation because if you're going to do that you know scientific journalism you have to separate very clearly the raw data and how it's being interpreted and when you when you intermingle them even in just how it's how it's initially presented you're influencing all the findings after that and that was that was something we were really weary of yeah it's it's quite a quite a journey and, and a lot to balance and so as we close this out um you know i'd love to see or love to ask where you see this all going and, and the future of ddos secrets and you know what what you're trying to do in, in the short and medium terms and and how people can learn more about the organization or or support you if they choose um you can learn more about us by going to ddossecrets.com or donate by going to ddossecrets.charity. Um, in the long run, 
we just want to keep getting information into the hands of people and, and journalists. Um, I think that's the best way to, to shape the future is by, by giving everyone else the tools that they, that they need to do it themselves. There's, there's too much data for, for any, any one person or any one group to, to handle it alone or to make the decisions about what it means or what to do with it, but it belongs to everyone. And that's why we're building this reservoir of information. And that's why we want to share it as much as we can with the public directly and everything else with, you know, the journalists and the researchers and the experts that, you know, can, can sort through it and handle it without like hurting innocent people by exposing their information or putting people in, in danger when it comes to like more sensitive data sets. Um, yeah, in the short term, we we just need to we just need to keep going. We right now we just need to raise enough money to keep going for next year. Um, we have we have less than ten thousand dollars left right now. So um, yeah, we we desperately need some donations. Um, we we have. We recently hit the one one hundred million items published uh, mile marker. The Library of Congress is at one hundred and seventy five million items, and I would really like to hit the six year marker so that we can beat the Library of Congress. Because why should why should they be the first one to hit two hundred million? Well, that seems like a good place to leave it. I really appreciate you taking the time to share a little bit of information about the organization and how people can learn more. Emma, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Safe Mode, a weekly podcast on cybersecurity and digital privacy brought to you by CyberScoop. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and a review and share it with your friends, your mom, your dad. Nobody wants to get hacked. To find out more information or to contact me, your host, please visit cyberscoop.com.